This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI. That's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com education. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Where did the buyers come from today? Buy, 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 buy! Where did the sellers disappear to? That's what I keep thinking on a day like today. Stocks were trashed a week ago, started rebounding like crazy. Uh, With the Dow gaining 71 points, S&P advancing 0.29%, and the Nasdaq climbing 0.54%. Remember when the Nasdaq was down every day? It makes you wonder about the market's rationality, doesn't it? Come on, you're worried. You're wondering. I mean, you're thinking maybe it isn't even sane. Because for the most part, there was never anything wrong with the stocks that got really hammered during the sell-off. And there was really anything not that new about the stocks that were rallying other than the government gave them a tax cut. But the market's not crazy, nor is it irrational. In reality, traders tend to make wild overgeneralizations. They act fast. They paint with too broad a brush. And it's a mistake to assume that they really know what they're doing. In short, the market's often wrong. But we credit the action with being brilliant. How long can the market be? I'm going to give you some egregious examples tonight, starting with the stocks that were thrown away during the recent sell-off. First, we saw a rotation out of technology that in many cases really didn't make a lot of sense in a vacuum. Exhibit A, Salesforce.com. Now, back in September, CRM stood at 92 bucks. It then roared to $108 going into earnings. And when the company reported the results were superb. I mean, they were really stupendous. I scrutinized them. We had just line by line by line and had such faith it was that good. Yeah, what happened to the stock? It got completely bushwhacked. It fell to under $100 almost in a couple of days as part of that border rotation out of fast-growing companies that wouldn't see much benefit from a change in taxes. Salesforce has a lot of overseas exposure. It invests most of its cash back in the business to grow. They don't get a boost under this. It's not what works. Now, though, like other tech stocks, Salesforce has begun climbing back to where it was before the rotation. It's now at 104. Why? Simple. Because rotations tend to be temporary, and more importantly, growth investors simply can't resist buying fast-growing companies like this one especially when they just reported an amazing quarter and the stocks are dramatically lower than where they were when the quarter was reported. Here's how the decision-making process works. I'm going to give you the -the behind-the-scenes stuff. Initially, when we realized last week that the tax bill would actually pass the Senate, money managers desperately wanted exposure to companies that would get the biggest boost from the new 20% corporate tax rate, give or take a couple of percent. But to buy those stocks... 
they had to sell something else to raise that cash. They tend not to have new money coming in. This is the stock market. People don't just throw money at the stock market anymore. And many of these fund managers use techs like this as what's known as a source of funds. Sell, 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 sell. They sold the stocks, got cash in, and immediately reapplied it to these companies that did better under the tax code. That's right. They look at a company's stunning revenue growth, don't care about it. They want bottom line growth. But then the growth guys come right back. And they look at that same growth and they say, darn it, Salesforce is cheap versus where it traded historically. So they start buying. In other words, the second wave of people, they don't care about the tax cut. So were the sellers who crushed Salesforce wrong? Not exactly. They were traders. And depending on their timing, the trade may have made them money. But the fact is they probably didn't know what they owned or didn't care. In many cases, they were buying and selling an ETF that had Salesforce in it and knocked Salesforce down. It was unwitting selling. However, whenever a stock gets hit hard, it ends up coloring the commentary about the underlying company. Do you know that as soon as Salesforce started going down, the stock, we begin to hear that Salesforce, the company, may have had less growth than the bulls anticipated. After all, the stock had to be down for some reason, right? I mean, with deferred revenue, ah, you know, maybe sale. I mean, it didn't matter. The sellers said something was wrong by making their sales. The day-to-day action in a stock rarely gives you much insight about the actual business, though. Sure, there were sellers, but that doesn't mean the sellers were smart, and it doesn't mean they were right. Now, a big sell-off does make you wonder whether the sellers know something that you don't. And that can make you feel pretty paranoid or pretty stupid. But I had just spent several days with Salesforce.com as part of Dreamforce, its annual uh, uh, cloud conference. I'd spoken to the company's bankable CEO, Mark Benioff. I spoke to a lot of different people as I roamed the place. And I knew the business was good. So I told you to stick with it. Now, initially, that hurt. Stock kept falling. But I had done more homework than the sellers, which allowed me to handle the pain. And now it's on fire again. Do you know that that's been the process for Salesforce? Remember, the stock has been up, up, and up ever since we started recommending it around $8. Do you know that this same process happened? And it, 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 it just worked to a T for guess what? For Facebook, for Amazon, for Netflix, and Alphabet at one time, Google. It worked for Fang. Think about this. During the sell-off, Facebook stock dropped 11 points over a couple of days. Amazon stock plummeted 62 points. Netflix stock shed 15 points. And Alphabet, the parent of Google, saw its stock go down 60 points. Again, when this decline occurred, what did we think? Did we think, ah, you know what, that's just guys raising capital. Did we think, you know what, hey, you know what, the market's just going down. No, no, no. You know what we heard. We heard the fang was dead. Why? Because the stock went down. Classic circular reasoning. Fang deserves to go lower because it's going lower. But during this dastardly period, we heard that Fang's growth had been, uh, Facebook's growth had been slowing, that Amazon had a fabulous Black Friday and a beast of a Cyber Monday. We heard that Alphabet had some new numbers that demonstrated real strength at YouTube while making a strong case that its cloud division is really taking off. These positive developments all occurred while the stocks were falling. 
Yet precisely because the stock's rolling over, commentators just assume Fang was done for. But when you take your cue from the action and nothing else, you're going to be wrong far more often than you're right. Now the Fang stocks are all flying as people rethink the good news that they ignored during the decline. It happened all it happens all the time. Yesterday, the stock of Home Depot was down almost five bucks before its faded and terrific analyst meeting. I went through the comments and the presentation and the discussion with management. I chose to be blind to the stock. I just chose not to watch it. After the meeting, I figured the stock should be up two bucks, not down five bucks. But the fact that it was down made the negativity self-fulfilling. Something had to be wrong with Home Depot. I know this that it wasn't the case because I have conviction, I know my homework, I have discipline, and I knew that this stock could bounce. At the same time, the market's reevaluating the stocks that surged during the rotation without much thought. I saw the stock of retailer TJX companies get bid up to $77 on the positive aura from tax reform, but it didn't have a good quarter, and now it's back to 73 and change, where it belongs because it disappointed. So what else is primed to rally after getting hit in the rotation? Forget history. Last week, VMware reported right in the midst of the big tech seller, VMW. The quarter, it was a beautiful quarter. VMware is integral to the adoption of the cloud, which is still in its infancy, and its business is on fire. But it had the misfortune of reporting on the day when many investors were giving up on the cloud stocks. The cloud deniers are wrong. Something you can tell from listening to the people who build data centers, which means that at 117, down 10 points from the high, you should be buying the stock of VMware because it's too low. Then there's Broadcom. Last night, the semiconductor company reported sharply better than expected earnings, boosted its already big dividend by 72%, and raised guidance gigantically because a large customer is ordering like mad. That customer is almost certainly Apple, but like Fight Club, the first rule of being an Apple supplier is that you don't talk about being an Apple supplier. So what happens? At first, the stock soars, but then the sellers came in and knocked it down. Then there was a report from a small firm about Apple's new uh, the uh, 10 not selling well. You know what trumped the terrific news out of Broadcom? I think the initial rally was right, given how amazing the fundamentals are. Broadcom stock closed unchanged of all things, and I think that's too low here. Both that and Apple, which owned by my travel trust, deserve to trade higher. The Apple's only, stock was only up 31 cents. That's wrong. Finally, a word on retail. This morning, Laurent Patava, he's the CEO of Lululemon. He talked about an incredibly strong selling season. One thing that jumped out at me is that the New York store is doing extremely well. It's brand new. It's on Fifth Avenue. Search of Terrorism, already the number one store in the chain. Now, think about this. For ages, Macy's, which has a huge store that is a gigantic part of its earnings, has been saying that the flagship has been hurt, the Herald Square flagship, by a lack of tourism. Why? Strong dollar. Well, now the dollar's gotten weaker. We have Lululemon telling us the tourists are back. I've been flogging this Macy's horse ever since Manny Chirico, CEO of PVH, which is a big Macy's supplier, told us right here that this may be the best holiday season in four years. If he's right, then Macy's stock at $25 with a near 6% yield, it needs to be bought and bought now. Here's the bottom line. The market often makes mistakes. So you need to be wary of the endless rationalizations you may hear come after any meaningful decline. Just because the stock is down, that shouldn't mean it should be down. Sellers get things wrong as often as buyers do. They're not omniscient. So don't let them freak you out the next time a high-quality stock gets hit for a no-good reason. Let's go to Gary in New York, please. Gary. Thank you for taking my call, Mr. Kramer. Oh, thank you. What's up? 
I bought Skywork Solutions for 67. It's had a roller coaster ride with a recent high of over 117. It's receded to 96. Should I buy more, sell? Or I want hold? you to hold it. Um, I think that Skyworks Solutions has a very good business with Apple. Obviously, I think that Apple's doing much better than expected after listening to the Broadcom call last night. I'm comfortable with you holding SWKS because it's an Internet of Things place, not just, just Apple, and it's growing like mad. Sometimes the stocks don't tell the truth in their daily action, okay? Sometimes the seller have no idea what they're doing. Don't fall blindly. Oh, man, buddy, tonight... Bitcoin mania is in fever pitch. Even gold might be clearing Bitcoin whatevers. Uh, at one point, uh, it climbed up 40% in 40 hours. Uh, but could the wild days continue? Let me give you my take. And not just that I named Bug Mr. Bitcoin today. Then, that's my dog. Then Boeing first took flight nearly a century ago. And it hasn't looked back. What boundary will it break next? I've got the exclusive. And with questions remaining about the tax bill, is your portfolio prepared for what's next? Or is it all in Bitcoin? I'll be the judge when we play MI Diversify. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Enjoy the insane rise in Bitcoin. Because soon there will be a legitimate two-way market in the assets. Something that doesn't seem to be available right now. You see, the SIBO, the CME, and the NASDAQ have all thrown their hats in the ring to offer derivatives on Bitcoin sometime next year, giving everyone a better, broader way to be involved in this instrument without venturing into the risky, barely regulated places where people normally buy and sell these things. Notice, I never once called Bitcoin a currency or even this term a cryptocurrency. That's because... It's not really a currency at all, so why do that? For starters, there's not much you can buy with it. But more important, after its recent ascent, Bitcoin's become some sort of abstruse casino game that seems to have only winners and no losers. Well, you got to like that, right? I think, though, that could change. Perhaps not at first, as the size of the market's only $250 billion. So given its popularity, it could have room to double, triple, quadruple, I don't know. But whenever any security runs from 5,000 to 10,000 to 15,000 to 19,000 in a matter of weeks or even hours, you got to wonder, I don't know, how long will it be before it bursts? So why am I suspicious of this fabulous table game that's made people so much money? Well, first, no one knows who created it. Second, no one knows how much the creator reserved for themselves. For all we know, there are tons of these things sitting on the sidelines somewhere. Third, there's virtually no transparency into the underlying system, none whatsoever. Fourth, there's no government backing, obviously. There are no underlying assets backing it up, and there's no military support for the Bitcoin system, unlike real currencies. Fifth, despite the allegiance its buyers swear to a blockchain, another great buzzword, the secret way to transact, the secure way to transact this with blockchain, at the end of the day, you know what this is? It's software. And what do we know about software? All software can be hacked. When, not if, but when that happens, it will be a total loss. There's no insurance, no fiat backing. With those five considerations, sooner or later, this thing's going to run out of steam. 
Now, what's driving the rally? I believe Bitcoin's being hoarded by a select few players who want to keep the supply on the market tight. There's a bunch of traders, a lot of hedge funds they don't. In other words, I think it's a classic corner. Bitcoin can be mined, something that's made it seem like the death knell of another thing that can be mined, gold. We find, out, we find about 1% of the world's supply of gold each year, which has kept the precious metal precious. Unlike gold, these hidden baubles can be mined using computers running on chips from NVIDIA or AMD. It's an interesting sidelight for both of them, not one thing you should buy the stocks for, although both companies really, at one time or another, have understood the hype. Uh, but they try to play it down. Unlike, say, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Square, who's been really aggressive about playing it up, even though it's not actually that important to the payment technology company, at least not according to the chief financial officer who came on the show. Now, when these three exchanges jump in, that's going to change the dynamic. Derivative trading in Bitcoin will create a real two-way market here. At last, someone will be on the other side of the trade, which should help eliminate the hoarding. There'll be supply. Who would be so bold as to short Bitcoin? We don't know. But if it keeps climbing, somebody will take that bet. Once we get an orderly market in Bitcoin, I think a top won't be far behind. Until right before these derivatives launch, though, it would not surprise me one bit if this thing can keep running and running and perhaps running. But remember, like any financial instrument that suddenly caught the fancy of non-traditional investors, the thing can peak at any time. People are buying Bitcoin. Why? Because it's going up. And when that stops, why will they sell it? Because, well, it's going down. That's just the nature of these kinds of moves. Look, I want to congratulate everyone who was early on the story, everyone who bought it yesterday and sold it at 19000 Everyone's made a fortune in Bitcoin. You're smart. You're good. You're fabulous. But when the other side of the trade develops, bulls make money, bears make money, and pigs get slaughtered. And I do not want you to be a pig and get slaughtered. Scott in Maryland, Scott. Hey, Booyah, Jim. Long time, first time. Fabulous. Happy alert, Actions Alert Plus Club member. Yes, I hope you made and, the call uh, yesterday. You did a good job. Do, and especially for going to West Point, uh, my alma mater. And we're going to crush Navy this weekend. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and thank you, you for, uh, for going to West Point. And thank you, being, thank you for being one of these people who protects our country. Hey, great. Jim, question on regional banks. I know from the club that you like key. Yo, but for my homework, I think Co-America, PNC, or maybe regions are better. Uh, is the whole sector okay? Yeah, you know, PNC is really fabulous. I think that, that Comerica is a, is a push. I like regions because my daughter went down to Tulane. I, thought I kicked the tires there. You know what? They're all good. They're all good. Thank you for the kind comments. Sure, Bitcoin's Wild West days may soon be over. But for now, I got a little suspicious about it, but that's all right. Much more mad money ahead. Shares of Boeing moved higher today, leading the Dow, and the stock's up more than 80% year-to-date. Can it fly even higher? Do not miss my exclusive with the CEO of this most iconic company. Then, with a government shutdown looming at the end of the week, does your portfolio have what it takes to survive the unknowns? I'm giving my take when we play on my diversified. Plus, all your calls, rapid fire, in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. A year ago, then-President-elect Donald Trump fired off a tweet slamming Boeing for the cost of its new Air Force One program. The stock immediately got dinged, but quickly recovered, and it's been on fire ever since, roaring up more than 80% over the last 12 months. Some of that's thanks to the red-hot aerospace cycle. The demand for commercial aircraft is incredibly strong. Some of it's about rising defense spending. 
And part of it comes down to the tax cut, as Boeing currently pays an effective rate of 28.5%. So whatever the final legislation looks like, they'll be paying less. In short, it's a very exciting time to be Boeing. And the stock just keeps roaring. Can the momentum continue? We had a chance to catch up with Dennis Mullenberg. He is Boeing's chairman, president, and CEO at the New York Stock Exchange this morning. And boy, am I fired up about it. Take a look. Dennis, when I got in the business, Boeing had a boom-bust cycle, and it wasn't that important to the economy. I see a new Boeing. I see just straight-line growth, and maybe it's the most important company to our country. Well, Jim, I think you've uh, characterized it right. It, the, the nature of the business has changed. You know, global traffic has become very networked, very connected. We're seeing traffic growth around the world, passenger traffic growing about 7% a year, outpacing GDP. we got millions of new people traveling every year. And so our business has turned from being a cyclical commercial business to a long-term sustained growth business. Where do you think we are in knowing that story because I think it must be told because you may be the engine of the U.S. economy right now. Mm. Well, I think we're a big growth engine for the economy, and it's really, uh, again, driven by what we're seeing on commercial traffic growth around the world. You think about the, the pace of growth, you know, less than, uh, less than 20% of the world's population has ever taken a single flight, believe it or not. This year alone, 100 million people in Asia will fly for the first time. So when you see traffic growing at 7% a year, it's going to outpace GDP. That's going to drive economic growth. You think about what that means to production of airplanes. This year, we're going to build about 750 commercial airplanes. By the end of the decade, we'll be well north of 900 airplanes a year. That's manufacturing jobs, right? That's economic growth. That's economic energy. Can you put that in perspective, Dennis? Because when I first went to Boeing, which is in the 80s, it was a big deal to have a couple planes made a week. Well, we've been ramping up production since the 80s. So uh, just to give you an example, our 737 line in uh, Renton, Washington, right now we're building 47 aircraft a month in that factory. This is in a space that not that long ago was maybe 17 to 20 airplanes a month. So you can see as we're driving efficiency, our team is doing a great job of of ramping up production. Next year, we're going to take that line to 52 airplanes a month. And in 2019, we're going to ramp up to 57 a month. Well, in the broader uh, scheme of things, you have the only 20-year plan of any company I deal with. Can you talk about the way that that's possible and and mention the backlog and, and, and the size of that backlog? Well, that's where the fundamentals start. You take a look at the backlog. We've got 5,700 commercial airplanes in backlog today. If you take a look at the combination of commercial and defense business, it's about half a trillion dollars of backlog. You want to put that in in the sense of production lines, it's about seven years of production. So that allows us to do long-term planning, uh, long-term production planning, and then leverage that to invest in the future. So we're always investing in innovation, investing in the next product line. Tax reform. I know you're going to Washington. Uh, A lot of people feel, well, what will happen is is that the companies get the money. They'll just, Mm. you've always been great with dividend. You've boosted it four years down 20%. That's been terrific. But tax reform means more jobs when it comes to both. It absolutely does. I think tax reform is the single most important thing we can do in this country to unleash economic energy. It's going to unleash growth. First thing we're going to do with the benefits of tax reform we're going to invest in innovation, right? We're going to invest in capital, new product lines. It's going to create more manufacturing jobs. Now, our shareholders are going to benefit too, right? We're going to improve dividends, share repurchase. But number one use of cash here is invest in innovation for the future. I think that uh, 
if you could give us a sense of the competition out there, we're going to spend more time in the second segment talking about all the great things about Mars and about unmanned. But in the end, you are making, for instance, an Emirates order where the CEO says a better economics plane. You make them better and you make them less expensive for the operator. Yeah. We make the best airplanes in the world, and I'm really proud of our team. And that's uh, not only in terms of product performance, but also how we support those products in the field. And we, uh, we provide best value for our customers, and that's what's driving the growth in this business. Now, you came up from the defense side. Uh, we all think of Boeing. We, get, we all get on Boeing planes. We think they're a big commercial operation. The defense business has been phenomenal for Boeing in the last, well, it's actually been phenomenal since Boeing was created. Yeah, it's been a very strong part of who we are as a company. And we're a 100-year-old company. We started as a, a military airplane company. It was the first airplane we built. Military airplanes and uh, our defense business, still about a third of our company today. And we're a unique company in the world when it comes to aerospace and strength of commercial and our military business. And that combination of commercial and defense is part of what sustains us for the long run. Uh, not to be too all over the map, but we were at West Point recently. And where you're company is loved, and it's loved because of the greatness of, of the machines, but it's also loved because you made a commitment to hiring that almost no other company could be. Absolutely. We have great, uh, great pride in serving our veterans, and uh, the relationship we have with West Point and with all the service academies is fantastic. And as we're investing in future leaders, that's an important part of that relationship. We also hire a lot of veterans. We have more than 20,000 veterans working for the Boeing Company. And we also think it's important that we invest in them in terms of helping them with job transition, helping their families and the communities. Uh, that's one of our biggest investment areas for our global giving. And uh, you know, these, these veterans have done the hard work of our country, and they deserve our, uh, our respect. At the same time, you've told me and your company's told me that they're also the best hires. They're yeah. the most responsible. They have the most on-time sensibility yeah. and command group. Yeah, what happens is they bring these great leadership skills to our company. They bring values, they bring integrity and character, uh, they bring that ethic of hard work. And uh, that, those veterans in our workforce are part of what makes our company who we are. My father would always tell me when he was in the Pacific, we always saw zeros first and mm. was shot by a zero uh, on, on mm. a boat where they shot, shot off the propeller. And then one day he saw silver birds yeah. and they were B-29s and he knew they were going to win the war. Is that the same thing when people are in uniform yeah. in hostile places and they see your helicopters? Yeah, that's what happens today. Now, I've heard so many stories, for example, of uh, the conflict in the Middle East and, and our veterans there that are doing the hard work of the country. And uh, when they're pinned down or in a dangerous position and they hear the sound of those Apache helicopters coming over the hill, right, they know, they know their lives are going to be saved. And, you know, that's part of what makes our business work. Now, uh, all along, Boeing's had a fabulous relationship with every, every party, every government, because it's so integral yeah. to both the growth of our country and to your product. Uh, you're starting a little rockier with a tweet about Air Force One. How is our president uh, and Dennis working? And, and has, has it been, been a good of relationship because he seems yeah. to want to sell a lot of Boeing planes when he's overseas. Yeah. Well, we've had a great relationship. And uh, I tell you what, the thing I love about uh, President Trump is he's, he's really focused on helping business succeed, right? We've got open communication lines. He's taken some of the actions to help us drive economic growth. I think the work on tax reform, uh, the work that's being done on regulatory reform is very important. And just having a seat at the table, I think, is so important for business today. As we think about you know, what's going to benefit the economy of this country, how are we going to create great manufacturing jobs, that's right in our sweet spot. That's what we do as a company. At, you know, at the same time, uh, the administration uh, has, I think, made it clear that the days when your competitors, like a Bombardier, can just dump planes yeah. and wreck 
an industry. Those days are over. You got it. We, we have to have fair competition. You know, we love competition. Competition makes us better. I'm glad to compete any day. And I'm very confident that when we play on a level playing field, we're going to win. But it's important that everybody plays by the same rules. And uh, you see the administration has taken a firm stance on that as well. Uh, that's important for global competition. And when we play on that level playing field, we're going to win. Now, Bombardier says, well, wait a second, 300% tariff, this is ridiculous, could drive us out of business. Yeah. But it, doesn't that actually equate to what it costs to make a real plane? Yeah. Well, part of what we saw in this particular Bombardier case is a, a case of uh, dumping into the U.S. market. As I said, we're not afraid to compete. We love to compete, but let's all play by the same rules. Now, that, that's a Delta deal. You also have great relationships with all the airlines. The yeah. airlines need more planes, don't they? They do. Yeah, and, and Delta and, and, and the airlines more broadly, you know, great customers of ours. We've got a ton of respect for them. Our, our job is to provide value for our customers. And you take a look at the traffic growth around the world, uh, whether it's passenger traffic or cargo growth, our, our uh, customers need new airplanes. They need new capabilities. And we're bringing new innovation to the marketplace. Our new 737 MAX, 787 Dreamliner, the new 777X that we're working on today. Uh, these are products for the future. We often think of, uh, sometimes our country gets down on ourselves. Uh, we think we don't make anything that's that competitive. But when it comes to China, who does best? We do, right? We, we have a great company that produces game-winning products around the world. Uh, if you take a look at China, really important marketplace for us. The world needs 41,000 new airplanes over the next 20 years. More than 7,000 of those are in China. And uh, we're competing and winning in China today. We have a great partnerships there, important customers. That's a, a pivotal market for the future. All right. Now, we're going to take a break uh, with Mr. Molenberg, and uh, we have lots more to talk about, including some of the incredible, exciting initiatives that people are not talking about at all that I think are going to redefine Boeing. We'll be back in a moment. back with Dennis Mullenberg. He's the CEO, President Chairman of Boeing. Dennis, who's going to get a man on Mars first, you or Elon Musk? We are. Right, we're, uh, we're working on that next generation rocket right now with our NASA customers. It's called Space Launch System. Uh, this is a rocket that's about 36 stories tall. We're in final assembly right now down at uh, Mashoud, uh, down near uh, New Orleans. Okay. And uh, we're going to take first test flight uh, in 2019. And uh, we're going to do a slingshot mission around the, the moon. Eventually, we're going to go to Mars. And uh, I firmly believe first person that sets foot on Mars will get there on a Boeing rocket. Will we be alive on that? Yes. We will be. Yeah. This, and it's because you guys are really ramping this. We're ramping it up. And uh, you know, we're going to start flying late this decade. And I'm hopeful that uh, we're going to make a mission to Mars in, in the next decade. Well, I, I just want to put this in context because uh, Mr. Musk thinks that this is a layup for him to do. Yeah. You had the same level of confidence that Jim McNerney had when I interviewed him, and everyone was worried that the Dreamliner would never get off the ground. Yeah. I hear nothing, but it's going to be you. Yeah, we're going to do it. And, uh, you know, our company does big, complex things. Those are the kind of programs we do. Uh, you need to develop a new airplane that's going to connect the world. We do that. International Space Station, putting it on orbit. We've done it, right? Our team knows how to do big, complex projects that change the world. Now, at the same time, you've got a little outfit that you bought, mm -hmm. this Aurora Flight Services, yeah. that I think is doing things that remind me of uh, autonomous cars, remind me of all yeah. the great things yeah. uh, that we're seeing from Internet of Things. Yeah. There's a tremendous wave of energy going into autonomous systems. Now, we've developed autonomous airplanes and vehicles for our defense customers for some time, all the way from space, like the X-37, to to uh, drones that uh, operate for the military, to underwater 
unmanned submarines. Uh, we're working on that whole range of products. But the energy that's going into autonomous vehicles is very significant, and we expect to continue to invest there. Aurora is an example of our next step investment. Now, these are things that cost a lot. You have an R&D budget of $6 billion. Not many yeah. other companies have that. Can you fund all these uh, things? Can you hire all the right people? Yeah. Don't they all want to go to Facebook and, uh, and Google? Yeah, we attract talent, right? This is a great business. I'm obviously a little biased here, but I think we have the greatest company in the world building the most amazing products. And uh, what makes that work is our talent. And uh, we do invest heavily in R&D. Uh, we're going to invest more than $6 billion in innovation again next year. Uh, we're hopeful that as tax reform comes through, we're going to be able to, to crank up that investment even further. And this is going into those next generation products. That's part of what attracts talent to Boeing, is to be able to work on the most amazing products in the world. Uh, these are ethereal issues about why I think the stock could go to 400 without a problem. Best performer in the yeah. Dow. But nitty gritty, you're doing some things uh, about de-risking the company. I yeah. like aftermarket sector, This, the services, the yeah. global services. But these are yeah. things that I don't think people realize make it so that you have every day you have a huge amount of business. You, you got it. We, uh, we have a tremendous business. We're going to grow our services business from what is about $15 billion a year now to uh, a target of $50 billion a year over the next five to 10 years. That aftermarket support is an important part of our growth engine for the future. We're also investing in innovation internally in terms of process efficiency, automation in our factory systems, uh, how we deal with our supply chain. Those are going to drive bottom line performance, which again allows us to invest in the future. Now, when we look at Boeing versus Airbus, uh, Jim McNerdy, went, I once asked him because he went to Yale. I said, is it like Harvard versus Yale? He said, no, it's much tougher. Where are you right now versus Airbus? Is it one of these things, because you've been winning a lot of orders, and we see that, but put it in context of, we see these headlines, well, you win this big order, but it seems like everything's tipped, and you're winning on your ability to make the best aircraft. Yeah, we're, we're doing well. It's a tough competition. Is, you know, Air, Airbus is a, is a tough and respected competitor. Uh, in the narrow body marketplace, that's about a 50-50 competition. We're, we're winning more than 50-50 in the wide body marketplace right now, but uh, we can't slow down, right? What I've told our team is this is a competitive marketplace. Aerospace is a very attractive global market. It's attracting more competitors as a result. So we always have to stay on our leading edge. We can never rest. We have to invest in innovation. We have to drive productivity. Now, I have great confidence in our team. But uh, we're not going to slow down. Okay. Now, when I told people I was interviewing, which very, everyone's very excited about Boeing, it's just a company. It's made a lot of money for people, but it's been it's it's a uh, national icon. Yeah. And they asked me two things. They say, well, first of all, can they make a plane that gets me to London in an hour? And they're talking about obviously there's a Japan Airlines investment ten million to do that. And second, I like a lot of room in the plane. Why does everybody like these narrow body planes? Yeah. So, what's the mystique of narrow body, and is yeah. it important that we cut flight time to different places? Yeah. Well, we're working on a number of innovations for the future. So, uh, you take a look at passenger comfort and today's subsonic airplanes. We're making them better and better. Think about the new 787 Dreamliner on a long global flight. People get off that airplane feeling better because of the <laughs> environment true. in that airplane. But we're also investing in next generation high speed airplanes. Someday. We'll be able to go anywhere in the world in two hours. You Some, think so? I think so. And uh, it's not that far away. I so, think. Mr. McNerney told me there may not be that much demand for that. Yeah. I, I felt at a certain price point, I'm yeah. paying. Yeah, it's all about the economics. And it's, he's right, there's, there's a smaller marketplace right. for that. But at some point, the technology will mature to make it economically feasible. Go anywhere in the world in two hours. I think someday we're going to have a low Earth orbit space travel business that'll be economically viable. That's not that far away. 
And then as I mentioned before, ultimately we're going to step out and, and take space travel to Mars. So it's an expanding marketplace. I hear this term space taxi. I don't know whether to believe it. Will I be able to hail a plane for a lot of money to be able to go where I want in the universe? Yeah. Well, we're building a space taxi today, the uh, CST-100 Starliner that's going to take uh, astronauts to the space station. Again, we're going to do first flight with that vehicle next year, and that'll create a low-Earth orbit space taxi uh, capability. And I think uh, out in the future, ultimately, you're going to see space travel to the moon and to Mars. Now, that's still a ways out there. We've got a lot of work to do. Okay. But that's part of what you know excites us about the future, and that keeps driving innovation for the All future. All right. Uh, in the little time we have left, talk about being the steward of what mm. may be the most important company we have in this country. Well, we've got a lot of respect for Boeing. You know, it's a, it's a company that's uh, more than 100 years old. This is our 101st year. Last year, we had the great pleasure of celebrating our centennial. We looked back on our history, the proud heritage of this company. But even more, it allows us to look forward to the future. You know, we, we realize Boeing has a big impact on our country and on the world. And that's a role that we have to respect and we have to nurture. We have to continue to grow. You know, we work on things that really matter and people's lives depend on it. And so we have to drive it with this sense of excellence. And you know, that's part of what is in our Boeing DNA. I think it's part of what makes our company great. And it really gets back to our talent, our people, these amazing innovators that have innovated for a century. And uh, you think about what's going to happen in the next century, I think we're going to be amazed. Well, Dennis, honored that you sat down with Mad Money and uh, talked about maybe the best we have, Boeing. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. Okay. Great to see you. That's Dennis Molenberg. He's the chairman, president, and CEO of Boeing. Proud company. And yes, because it's mad money, great stock. Stay with Craig. Round is over. Are you ready, Skate? Daddy, time for the lightning round. Clears the mind. I'm going to start with George in California. George. Hey, I'm looking for information on energy transfer partners. Well, I hope you're only looking for information, not one to pull the trigger, because I got to tell you, that Don't is buy. worst Don't in buy. show. I can't stand it. Sell, and sell, it's hurting sell. the whole group because it's so big, it pulls down. Stay away. I need to go to Brian in Florida. Brian. Hey, Jim. Booyah to you. Booyah. Hey, my stock is Allegan. It can't catch a break. Now, there's a new one. Sage Therapeutics has got a competitive drug to something that they may be doing for depression. The other day, we saw another company, Revance, have a competitive product to Botox. Doesn't matter that the CEO, Brent Saunders, just bought a lot of stock. Nothing matters. This stock is a one-way stock. It is the anti-Bitcoin. Let's go to what, Georgia, Michigan, Georgia. Yeah, this is George in Michigan. I'm calling about a company by the name of Gentex lately. You know, Gentex, I'm kind of okay on it. Um, you know, look, it does vision safety. That's a good area. I'm going to endorse it. I, I, I just wait. I, a lot of the moves occurred. Let's go to Bert, New York. Bert. Hi, Jim. This Bert. is Bert, New York. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. Thank you. Stock that I'm talking about is. First Data Corporation. Okay, First Data Corp. owned by Action Alerts. They had a crummy quarter, frankly. I was not happy with it at all. I think the CEO should come on. I think the company is stalled. I liked it. Did a lot of work on it. Right now, I'm feeling awful wrong about FTC. Let's go to Kathy in Texas. Kathy. Booyah. Booyah. You know how to say booyah in Spanish? No, how would you do that? Booyah. 
Holy cow. Oh, oh, I mean, I never thought of that. I mean, that's that's called, that's genuine homespun wisdom. How can I help? What about Maztec, MTZ? Oh, man, I really like that. Utility upgrade in a time when we have all these hurricanes? That is a wise idea. I say booyah in Spanish. Michael in Connecticut. Michael. Hello, Jim. Michael. Love your books, and I'm actually using them. I'm calling about Atmos Energy You obviously are, because it's one of my favorites. Distributes natural, ga- natural gas, and it's doing a great job of it. I say you stay long it. Um, I'm going to Mike in my home state of Pennsylvania. Mike. Jim, booyah. Booyah, Pittsburgh, or booyah, Philadelphia? Billiard from Philly, PA, the you, home of this year's future Super Bowl champions, the Philadelphia Eagles. This guy is the smartest caller we've ever had. How can I help? What should I do with the 10,000 shares of Cisco I've owned for 25 years? I think that, that first of all, congratulations. Second, I think Chuck Robbins is doing a good job. I would hold on to Cisco, and I would hold on to the Philadelphia Eagles. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. With all the uncertainty and suspicion surrounding Bitcoin, let's switch gears for a moment and talk about something that is much more certain. That is being diversified is one of the most important rules to invest by. No matter what the market looks like, you can never count on one stock or one sector to continue roaring higher. And you certainly don't want to put yourself in a position to suffer major losses in case of a sector pullback. That's why you must create a well-diversified portfolio. And it's the reason why we still play Am I Diversified, even though on Twitter people would like me to play Am I Bitcoin. Now, this is where you give me a call or tweet me and tell me your top five holdings. And I'll let you know if your portfolio is diversified enough or if I need to blow the whistle or buzz you. Let's start with a tweet from one of my absolute favorite tweet friends and a man who has been involved with the idea that maybe I should just change myself to Bitcoin. It's Marty Chargan, at Marty Chargan, who says, at Jim Cramer, Apple J&J, Waste Management, MasterCard, and RPM, M-I, Diversified. Wow, Marty's so smart. Hey, you know what? These are, uh, I just bought this one for my chapel search support, Waste Management. It is doing so well. Apple, of course, own, don't trace. We have tech. We have, uh, you know, it's related to construction, but got to call it garbage. MasterCard is a great fintech company, RPM. We've had them on, you know, it's a housing play. And J&J, the drug company, Marty, you need to do absolutely nothing. I'm jealous. My Chapel Trust should own MasterCard. Just breathtakingly good. But you know what? I would throw it all in for Bitcoin if, I weren't to, if it weren't for the fact that I went to college. Okay. And, or went to secondary school. I, or I went to kindergarten. Okay. Let's go to Steve in California. Steve. Booyah from Redondo Beach. Oh, man. Another beautiful place. Does it ever get cold and nasty there? No. No, never, Jim. All right. Hey, I want to tell you, my wife and I are really extremely grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And we, uh, it's uh, it's you do it. You don't really know that people like it. So it's terrific when anyone says it. Thank you. Well, good. I'm glad. Uh, listen, I got a two-part am I diversified question for you. 
the first part is when you are weighting your stocks uh, in Am I Diversified, do you weight them by the number of shares you have or by the dollar amount they're worth? For instance, I only have three shares of Intuitive Surgical. I got about 55 shares of Blackstone, but the dollar amount is roughly in the same ballpark. I, and then I will the tell you, part, uh, Steve, it's a great question. I use dollar amount, but I, I'm sure some people might have a different view, but that is a really great question of which I am convinced that dollar amount's the best way. But go ahead. Let's go to work. Okay. All right. So let's see if, uh, if I'm, I'm diversified here. We got Adobe, Alibaba, Boeing, Blackstone, and Intuitive Surgical. All right. Who's ever handling the calls today? What's the deal with all the fabulous stocks? Intuitive Surgical, one of my absolute favorites. MedTech, Blackstone, wow, those guys are so smart and you get a yield. Boeing, well, I mean... The, the iconic company that we've addressed today, Alibaba, which is terrific Chinese retail, and Adobe, Shantanu and Orion. I wrote about that. I talked about him on my ActionAlertsPlus.com club call saying, how could my trust have ever sold Adobe? It's tech, it's aerospace, it's finance, it's med, and it's retail, and it's well-played, everyone. And notice that no one said, I'm all in Bitcoin and I'm smarter than you. Hallelujah! That was easy. Stay with Kramer. Interviewed two CEOs today. Laurent Patavant, he is the CEO of Lululemon. And Mr. Moldenberg, and he is the CEO of Boeing. And I've got to tell you, I think both those stocks are going to continue to work higher. Boeing's got a moldier path toward earnings. And Lulu had its first quarter where I am seeing the kind of breakout that I expected a year ago. Isn't it great? A retailer and an aerospace company that really are going to work, I maybe even for years. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'd find just a few right here in Man Money. I'm Jim Kramer. See you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.